0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network.
1: Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So, if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today.
2: Spring training is right around the corner. So come for the games and have a ball in Arizona. With world-class resorts, unbeatable dining and nightlife, amazing scenery, and endless outdoor adventure. Make your visit unforgettable. Plan your getaway at MySpringTraining.com. Welcome to another episode of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll Podcast. I'm Ray Coob.
0: I'm Marcus Goldman.
2: And today we're gonna dance with, sing with, and probably pump our fists and shake our heads with A band that both of us were in prime time with them at both eras for me and at least one of the eras for you of a band that we both love sincerely. They are part of America's rock and roll DNA. They were once wrongly called the American answer to the Rolling Stones. I'm talking about... Somebody that we know and love. And in my case, I got to meet and hang around them a little bit that was just kind of cuckoo for me in my MMR days in the 80s. Talking about those bad boys out of Boston, Aerosmith. You love them too,
0: man, don't you? I do. And my son is also a fan of a couple of their songs as well, which...
2: Okay, now I got to know, because it's the Luca test, because five-year-olds are pure, and they don't have a whole lot of, like programming from society, what are the songs that l- make Luca stand up and take
0: notice? He loves Train Kept a Rollin' because it's about trains and oh, even though he completely does not get the real meaning of Train Kept a Rolling he <laughs>
2: that's good for now that's good
0: he still thinks it's about riding a train down the tracks going to somewhere which is totally great that's the beauty of innocence and naivete of a child but he also likes sweet emotion because of the way the guitar talks and says Rain emotions. and he loves the fact that the guitar work is so cool those two are two of their best,
2: and they passed the Luca test. So, <laughs> and onward we go. Uh, these guys uh, came together in, I would say, maybe the most unlikely of circumstances and ways. I'm talking about Steven Tallarico, who was born in Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. Joe Pereira, that's Joe Perry's real birth name. Who was born in Massachusetts, but not in Boston. He was from Lawrence. Tommy Hamilton, probably one of the nicest guys in rock and roll, who was born in Colorado Springs. So he came from far away to be part of this thing. Joey Kramer, another guy born in New York, but in the Bronx. And Brad Whitford, also born in Massachusetts, but not in Boston. They would come together. They go to Boston and make it their home and make it their base and make it really their identity.
0: How this band ended up forming and getting together is kind of a wild little story, which I'm looking forward to talking about because they all come from very different backgrounds and different situations, and they end up meeting. It's almost as if the Sky Gods had it in store for this type of a unification to happen. And
2: you guys over there, meet these guys over here. Yeah.
0: Let's form a band. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> isn't that how the rock and roll sky gods work
2: <laughs> maybe it's more like hey dude come on over here the guy with the records under his arm talk to him talk to him
0: <laughs> yeah, totally it's you know those, something like that yeah, it's it's random stories like that but it seems like this band was meant to happen and how they bent the blues to their own groove is pretty impressive because... They
2: also played it straight, though. They bent it, but they also played it straight as part of what they did through the years. So let's not forget that. Absolutely. One of the things that I learned during getting ready for this podcast, Marcus, is that a story about how Steve and Joe met was wrong. It didn't happen that way. I had always heard that they met when they were working at a resort, uh, at an ice cream stand, that kind of thing. And it turns out the first time Joe Perry ran into or crossed paths with Steven was Joe was working at a restaurant and these guys came in and they kind of tore up the joint a bit and he had to go clean it up after they were done. And later he found out that these guys were in a local band with this kid, Steven Talarico which is Tyler's real name. And that would be the first time that they would interact. They would get together because of their mutual friends who kind of pulled them together.
0: Chain Reaction was a band Steven Tallarico was in and they actually had some high profile gigs in those early days opening up for bands like the Birds the Beach Boys and the last lineup of the Yardbirds with Jimmy wow. Page wow. that's pretty wild
2: for young kids yeah, yeah. that's great
0: and Wow, I didn't know
2: that it's a what moment nice
0: Yeah, I found that out when I was doing a little bit of research on the Aerosmith timeline.
2: And meanwhile, Perry and Tom Hamilton, who've met, uh, started playing in a lot of different bands. Apparently, it's one of those things that unlike what we've learned about the Seattle scene, where there was a different band every couple of weeks and different names as people would come and go. But eventually, they settled on the jam band. That's not very imaginative, but it was enough to draw in Tyler and then Kramer And Ray Tabano on guitar and they formed the basis of Aerosmith before Brad Whitford would come along and his path would cross with, I think, Kramer's because they both went to Berkeley. So Whitford comes in and Ray Tabano goes out and they form what would become Aerosmith. And you know, the name Aerosmith, you know where it came from? No, where'd it come from? Their equivalent of Joey Kramer writing it on his peachy folders. (laughs) He had come up with he had come up with the name. He really had come up with the name and was kind of holding on to it. And he's been clear. Um, I always remember that there was another band that was called Arrowsmith. One word, Arrowsmith. And there was a little confusion at the beginning. And recently I went, went and tried to Google the band Arrowsmith and could not find one. Anything I typed in about Arrowsmith as a band. Took me back around to Aerosmith. And
0: that was a common misconception at the time because they were both new bands. Now, when you say Aerosmith versus Aerosmith, are you talking about A R R O W? Correct. Smith. Like the uh, Sinclair Lewis book. And there was confusion.
2: It's one of those things that at the time people knew about, but all these years later, the internet being the internet, no one's ever paid attention to this obscure band that also came out around 1971, two, three, whatever. But I just thought that was uh, one of those things from back then at the root of fandom of these guys that we fell in love with at first and then more and more and more, if that's possible,
0: throughout the 70s. Such a great band, and I remember hearing them on FM radio when I was a kid. I would be staying up late night reading books and listening to the radio well past my bedtime, and I remember hearing songs like Dream On on the rock stations, KBP on KZY in Denver, and Mm -hmm. just being blown away and listening to Dream On these past few days with my son, letting him hear it, and him just kind of looking at it. Steven Tyler has a phenomenal voice, which I'm excited to get into as we move forward talking about all of this.
2: Well, you know, he went to high school in New York and uh, didn't quite make it to graduation. Um, He got kicked out of school at the end, right at the very end. Because he was smoking the chiba and got caught. <laughs> well, but it was the times, man. Kids were finding weed and smoking, and it was so taboo back then, so oh. taboo. And it got a lot of people in trouble, and not just the big uh, rock stars in England, who Aerosmith would later be, you know, compared to. They were going through a lot of that in the states too, as young bands started forming. So once they all got together, he would meet up with Joey Pereira. His family was Portuguese-Italian. Both are very passionate people. So that's where a lot of the fire in Joe's playing came from. And he lent the Massachusetts roots, having grown up in Lawrence uh, and not too far from Boston. I guess somewhere in there, he met up with Tom Hamilton. His father was Air Force. Here's a commonality that we've seen before. So he moved around a bit and ended up there. Paths cross, and they meet with Tyler and the other guys, and they all pull together into this band that's going to start something or continue something i'm not sure which because there was already a lot of shit flying in boston rock and roll but they were part of that 70s wave with the jay giles band and so many others that would lead to the late 70s and beyond but so many great bands were coming out of boston and there they were in the middle of it the bad boys and tyler with his hand on his hip and his lips sticking out so much fun so much fun
1: for the fans I'll
2: tell you, man, as we get into talking more about the albums, you're going to find out how seminal and DNA encoded this whole thing is for me.
0: It's kind of a trip that a couple of New Yorkers went to Boston to make it when the normal Mm -hmm. way is either to go to New York or you go to L.A. to make it because that's where you get noticed at clubs like Max's of Kansas City or... The whiskey you know or anywhere on the Sunset Strip so you have all of these places that are notorious rock-and-roll clubs blues,
1: side, side
0: here these cats all move to Boston and make it with this sort of burgeoning underground scene and that's pretty rad Kramer goes up
2: because he's going to school there and it's all around the same time the other guys Whitford's at school And in Joe, it turns out, Joe had ADHD and a learning disability, really had a hard time finishing at school as well, had a hard time focusing and advancing. And that all came into play in a good way when he went rock and roll full time. And he said that a lot of his anxiety over that kind of stuff kind of started to fade away when he took on rock and roll and it came to him more naturally. He didn't learn a lot of the traditional things that the other two guys were learning over at Berkeley. Uh, But his elements, uh, combined with theirs, and also, of course, uh, the music and thoughts and mind of Steven Tyler. You put it all together, and that's what made this band go. And with very little variance, there's a time coming up in the future that we'll talk about where there's discord and people leave and come back and all that in this story. By the way, we can't cover it all in one episode of The Imbalanced History, or we'll be here all day. So we're going to do the beginning like we're talking about and get into the albums, too
0: you mentioned Joe Perry's ADHD and during his time in high school he was sent to a boarding school in Vermont where that's right I read about that he started learning about music because a lot of these kids from all over the world would bring magazines and albums and you know things like that and turn them on to new music like for example he learned about the uh, village voice from a student from New York City who brought a couple copies up so he started reading about it and then he you know started playing guitar and he started, you know, kind of finding himself in that area.
2: And the irony is his parents sent him there so he could comply with what they wanted him to get out of the education there. And it turned out being what he needed anyway. It's kind of funny how life works out this way.
0: Oh, yeah. One of the things that I learned in doing the research is, is while Joe Perry is not academically schooled in the same way, the guy plays lead guitar with feel like nobody's business. and. When you hear what he plays, you feel it. And I think that is one of the incredible strengths of Joe Perry. They
2: always talk about tone when it comes to guitar players. And certain people are instantly identifiable by their tone, the way they squeeze a note to start a song or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Perry's got that. And his combination with Brad Whitford. Their combined sound is also full of it the way that they fill each other up and finish each other's thoughts and their phrases Mm -hmm. and play together it's one of the most underrated tandems in rock and roll period and also one of the greatest absolutely
0: the media and most of the music world give almost all of the props to joe perry and steve tyler The whole band is so important together because them together as a whole is what made this sound this sound and what made it so great. Their chemistry is special.
2: And sadly, between time, apathy, drugs, alcohol, and some other things mixed in probably, they start to fall apart at one point in their career, even as they're starting to take off. They were on a trajectory, and then and things fell apart. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to talk about before we get too far into this episode. We're going to talk about the albums that got them to that point, and talk about how that happened, and then come back with another episode about a band I think there's just too much to talk about in one episode, buddy.
0: I agree a hundred percent because after they split and then had to revive themselves is a whole new career. And there's so much great information there as well. More great stories to share too. So I think we definitely have to do it in two and they're still doing it
2: today. You have to crawl on your belly (laughs) in the glass for a night in the ruts to get through that hell to get to where they get, and that's even bigger than where they are and what we'll be discussing as far as the main musical focus in the 70s. An amazing band in their time, and they were a tour de force, man. They could not be stopped on the road. They became bigger draws, part of festivals, you name it. They were part of everything that rock in the 70s was about and was becoming and growing right along with it. And along the way, they picked up addictions. And by the time I would cross paths with them in the eighties, it was clean and sober backstage and all around. And so I don't know what that was like, but I'm sure we know people who do. And if you're out there, you need to get in touch with us by sending us an email in at gmail.com. <imbalancehistory@gmail.com>. We may not get it before we're done this episode, but we'll get the message. <laughs>
0: The stories I can only imagine are off the hook, and they were definitely one of those big hard party bands, and the drugs, I think, caused a huge problem, and I can't wait to get into talking about their sound and their albums a little bit more, and their growth as a band, because if you listen back to their first three albums in a row, which I did during this last week, you hear the growth you hear the strengths you hear the weaknesses the weaknesses really aren't weaknesses but you hear where the band was going to change and evolve and why they were headed to where they were headed in those early albums
2: it's funny because i was doing the same as you were listening to those albums and more and and trying to sample through all of it to remind myself what the tone was of uh, Rock in a Hard Place or Night in the Ruts. You know, I remember those first five, six records very clearly because that was my primary initial music consumption age. You know, I was uh, a kid, so to speak. What we want to do is go back and look at those records and see what they mean here in the 21st century, I guess, a little bit, and review all of that as we uh, cover the early days of those bad boys, making Boston proud. We're talking about Aerosmith on this episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I think the first album is one of the most underrated albums of that era, and how the band grew through the uh, mid to late 70s, and how they hit a wall kind of in 1979, man, it really sucked. That's all I'm going to say. But it was almost over. They were almost done. Uh, to the fans with what was going on, what people were seeing that was verified news about things that were going on. Uh, we heard about the World Series of Rock fiasco. I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, outside the uh, regular concerts that they would have at Cleveland Stadium, uh, they would call it the World Series of Rock. And it started in 76, but in 1979, they were scheduled to play. There were five shootings, one fatality, dozens of robberies and incidents of violence all around the stadium All day before the concert, thousands of fans waited overnight, but it caused everybody to take a look at like, whoa, what the fuck is this? And that's right around the time that things started to get weird inside the Aerosmith camp. So, we should probably stop up, take a little break here, catch our breath, come back and talk about that a little bit, and talk about what happened through the departures of Joe Purry and Brad Whitford and how Aerosmith carried on there at the end of the
0: 70s into the 80s. Are you thirsty? I'm definitely parched, and I could use a beer as well, Ray, before we get back into talking about Aerosmith.
2: Summertime and a great pint go together like water, yeast, and hops. <laughs> And what a better place to go to get the pint that you want than Crooked Eye Brewery right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro.
0: With Pennsylvania's restrictions easing, there is live music and some other great events going on at Crooked Eye, so not only do you get that pint but you get to have a good time with your friends as well.
2: They are fully open, and I went in to see the Crooked Eye Band, the full Crooked Eye Band, back together for the first time in over a year, and what a great time when they're in on second Saturdays. And you can get great music at Killer Crooked Eye near you at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne now. Stop on by, see live music, and have a pint of your favorites from Crooked Eye at Jamie's House of Music. Right
0: in the heart of Delco. And there's something else
2: happening at the brewery, Marcus. They are now serving spirits. Pennsylvania Craft Spirits, now available along with your finest brews and all the other goodies they have at Crooked Eye and hapro I just think it helps everybody to have what they want, and that's part of having a good time when you go in both at the Hatboro Brewery location and at Jamie's House of Music, so wine and cocktails there as well. It's all part of the fun at Crooked Eye. Check them out at crookedeyebrewery.com. The best way to keep up with what's going on at both locations is is on Facebook, though.
0: They do a great job keeping us informed of what's happening at Crooked Eye or Jamie's House of Music on Facebook.
2: Or in the cure for what ails you since 2014. Check them out. Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro,
0: And in the heart of Delco.
2: It's Aerosmith on the Amellon's History of Rock and Roll. We're
0: back. Newsflash from the wire. 1972, Stephen Talarico changes his name to Stephen Tyler. August 5th, 1972, Aerosmith lands a $125,000 deal with Columbia. Following a show at New York's Max's Kansas City when Clive Davis saw them play big doings in the Big Apple that day, huh? No kidding and that's when all of the insanity started for them and that's when that whole cycle began.
2: they had been writing songs since they got together. What do they always say? You've got forever to write your first album and then you have about six months to write the (laughs) second one and that's kind of the story (laughs) of what happens to them. They're they're making these songs. Uh, Tyler had written Dream On a long time before Uh, It was recorded. They had played it live. It wasn't like it was totally new. But some of the songs that are on that first album, which I think is incredibly underrated, it's always kind of poo-pooed. I mean, don't forget, in addition to Dream On, one of the greatest rock ballads of all time, you've got Mama Kin on there. I mean, that is Aerosmith 101, and I don't think a lot of people realize it's on there because they have it on the best of stuff, right? You're right. Their version of Walking the Dog, you know, man, it's good stuff. This is the the root of who they're about to become. And songs like Make It or Somebody
0: are forgotten. What about One Way Street, man? Those were all really good songs, and listening back to them was so much fun because from a historical perspective and from a historical sense, this album gives you a feel for what Aerosmith is going to become down the line. And back at that time, Clive Davis and other record moguls were doing a phenomenal job grooming bands and helping them grow and develop. And you hear it in these first three albums, but boy, this first album really gives you a feel for what Aerosmith is and it shows you how they're starting to uh, gradually move into that sleazy dirty rock sound which they are so famous for
2: sadly Marcus the guy who helped to craft that sound on that album Adrian Barber is one of the victims of COVID-19 in the last year he spent the rest of his life after his retirement on Hawaii just living his life out there So you know who he was a little bit, because we haven't covered him at all. He's the guy who made the tapes that became the Beatles Live at the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany from 1962. Whoa. An early Beatles collector's item when it first came out. He produced the self-titled debut from the Allman Brothers Band. He produced the Velvet Underground's Loaded, and we lost him last year. Just wanted to make a note about that. What a time. That being said, on that first album, the drum sounds a little flat. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it was. It was part of what didn't quite click with people. But the sparkle was there, and Adrian captured what was going on there. And I really do believe there are so many unappreciated songs on that
0: album. I agree with you. I I love the album, and it was really fun listening back to it in its entirety. <laughs> Going back to the 70s in a weird sort of way and, you know, having childhood memories flash back up because these were songs mm-hmm. like Dream On and Mama Kin that I heard both on FM radio and then through some of the babysitters that we had during that time who would bring their records. <laughs> cool over.
2: babysitters, yeah, man. Seriously. You had And some cool friends of uh, older brothers, uh, the, uh, friends, you know, yep. you did, man.
0: We got lucky with some of the cool fr- cool older brothers and sisters of my friends, and there were some of the people who turned to on to music as well, and this was all the music that they were here listening to back in those days.
2: One of the things that I like about the early days there was that Tyler gave songwriting publishing credit to Sarinda Fox on Dream On because she was with him back then, was his inspiration, his muse, and his partner, and helped him to write part of it. Sure, she had money, and it was at a time when she really needed the money when she was sick. So, one of those little things that you don't always hear about, and it helped to launch
0: them. Dream On was on the charts at that time. They ended up performing it on American Bandstand, which seems sort of out of what? place, but yeah. Now, do we know
2: whether they perform live or were lip syncing? Can we can we check on that?
0: Research team, research department. I'm gonna presume lip syncing. I'm going to presume lip syncing, but we will find out from the research They weren't team.
2: a big enough band to make a change happen there. That might have been part of what really gave Dream On a second life and really drove it up the charts later because they were already on to their second album, Get Your Wings, after what was an okay start with the first one, right? Initially, not, not ultimately, but if initially. So, Get Your Wings comes out March 1974. Right around that time, the 8-track was getting really popular. There were a lot of players in cars. There were a lot of guys my age getting their license with cars that had a track players so anywhere you go the cool guys had get your wings and uh humble pie rock in the fillmore so
0: <laughs>
2: and this album became part of my high school cruising the songs are rudimentary to my aerosmith 101 same old song and dance as a perfect example uh, lucas favorite train kept it rolling which, you know, came out of the Yardbirds version of that, you know, uh, the whole splicing together the live audience and into the song and uh, really kind of made it different than what was going on, even though it was based off the old blues, you know, type of rock and roll. Seasons of Withers starts to show what they could become. Maybe a a thread for Tyler because he also connects that to Dream On, as songs that come to him in the night, so to speak, right? Pandora's Box shows that Joey Kramer can add something other than the name of the band, right? You got all this stuff going on, but it's creating a vibe. And the vibe also includes what they're doing in concert because they're out there. The critics are starting to get it. They're starting to really like it and they're taking off as a live band. So that's the atmosphere. That's where they are and and I can only go based on what was going on here. They were the hot band. They were our boys. They were only a few years older than us, right? They were living the life. Women, fast living, cars, the whole nine yards, but we didn't know that there was also uh, something insidious in the seedy
0: underbelly. Yeah, they were starting to, I think, because of the furious pace that they were going at, get involved in substances and situations to keep them going and knock them out and keep them going and knock them out and there's that whole up down phase we saw it with Elvis we saw it with so many other musicians who have had to go at that furious pace of releasing an album going on a world tour releasing an album going on a world tour yes. releasing an album going the on treadmill. a world tour yep and it is a treadmill and it's a really hard and like you said, they their whole life, you know, up until that point is in that first album. And then everything there is the next six months, the next six months, you know. So you see that cycle also in the songs, too. And that's not a criticism, but it's just the cycle.
2: And somewhere in the middle of the cycle for Get Your Wings, they meet Jack Douglas, who becomes part of the production team and takes over on what would become their first major smash worldwide smash with toys in the attic hitting in 1975 unbelievable impact immediately and it went on to sell millions of copies the whole nine yards but the songs were the crucial element when it came to why this album took what had already been going on and took it to a whole different level for the band Even if they weren't on the radio initially, FM Underground Radio was playing them because they played everything from the bands that they loved and they loved these guys. beyond the top 40-ish Walk This Way, right? Or Sweet Emotion, even, which was like an FM staple back then. Songs like Uncle Salty or Big Ten Inch Record, they became part of your rock and roll DNA. At least they did for me, because that sucker was stuck in Pace Gondam's 8-track in his Dodge Duster, (laughs) and we (laughs) rolled every night until we got where we were going. I think it was about 1977 by that time.
0: The FM radio stations I was listening to at that time were very big on this album. I remember when Sweet Emotion and Walk This Way were new and fresh and getting hit on radio. I also remember Toys in the Attic. I remember Big Ten-Inch Record...
2: It was like a novelty
0: record at first. Yeah, it was. It was a fun novelty record, and it still had that that catchy hook to it. So that and that that sense of humor to it that really pulled people in. And of course, teenagers are going to like all of those uh, double meanings. Double entendre,
2: (laughs) yes sir.
0: And bending the blues. The teenagers love to bend the blues, right? Absolutely. And in that case, they were bending them to their hormones. You know what else you also start to see at this point
2: is songs like No More, No More becoming part of the live pantheon. You see me crying, things like that start to be part of the uh, staples of the live show. Let's say that, right? Mm -hmm. And that continues to grow and they become a preeminent band of their time. And this album, man, and also in addition to everything that it gives and how it bonds them to Jack Douglas and everything that means. It gives them new life in the 80s, and this is uh, kind of going to be where we start part two of our Aerosmith episode, when Run DMC shows up like a defibrillator for Aerosmith's waning career, and that'll be part of part two. That's right. It's a two-parter. We know this up front because we looked at it, and we thought, how the fuck can we do all this in one sitting? And the answer is we can't. So here we are. And it's 1975, 76, and they are killing it, man. They're doing everything that Clive thought that they would do when he signed them to Columbia Records. And I'm sure some of the people at Atlantic who let him get away were sitting there pissed off about it. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes, Marcus, it's better to be pissed off than pissed on.
0: At this time period, were they playing the Spectrum? Were they playing the football field? Were they playing those huge venues here in Philadelphia?
2: I remember Aerosmith playing at the Spectrum. I'm sure they played at the Tower Theater before that, earlier in their career, but I don't remember that because I wasn't going to concerts then. But the earliest I remember hearing about them playing Philly was Spectrum. Right there at the end of my senior year of high school, they release rocks. I go to the store, I buy the first day. And I'm listening to this sucker flipping it over. I mean, I probably was driving everybody crazy in the house, right? (laughs) It just, I think, is their greatest album. There's cohesive songwriting. The production is spotless. They're helping Jack to tweak it so they become part of the production team. But Jack Douglas is clearly in charge and taking everything they thought they could be and making it happen in one album.
0: Yes, I remember hearing uh, Back in the Saddle for the first time, as well as uh, Nobody's Fault, and just being blown away by this album. We were excited as kids, after hearing the last album, to get this album. And at that time, I would have said probably the album before this was a better album because of the songs that I had listened to and had connected with at that time. But uh-huh. looking back at it now, this might be their finest work of cohesive rock and roll, without a doubt. It's the way it flows from Back
2: in the Saddle into Last Child, and then a ju- 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 rats in the cellar combination. A song that really isn't really very clear about what it's about you just kind of groove with it and enjoy it all the way through and in, in the old days you flipped it over right there and the first <laughs> song on side two is sick as a dog Please, to to bend in the blues with nobody's fault Get the lead out with L-E-A-D lead. So, you know, kind of like the old way mom would say, hey, get the lead out and go outside. You know, get the lead out of your ass. Promise. That's Tyler in a T, right? Licking a promise at home tonight, a beautiful song to close out the album. It's one of the great albums of the seventies. And I think it's their masterpiece, uh, in the original, you know, iteration. Of Aerosmith, Just love it. Maybe it's because it was part of my year getting out of high school and moving on into life.
0: You think that might be an explanation for that? Absolutely. It's where you were at that time, and it connected with you in a very, very special way.
2: I've been talking more about me. What's going on in Marcus' world there uh, between Toys in the Attic and Rocks, those two amazing albums? How is that stuff hitting you as uh, basically a 9, 10, 11-year-old?
0: It was basically... Me listening to it on the radio stations that it was on, and that was about it. I wasn't buying records from Aerosmith Were your friend's at that older time. brother
2: smoking pot in the backyard listening to
0: it? Absolutely. And okay. I had one friend, actually, that I used to play Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> with, and his older brother turned us on to music like this as well. Aerosmith, uh, who else was uh, early Genesis, I heard for the first time at his house bands like Uriah Heep. I think I heard Thin Lizzy at his house for the first time, so we're hearing a lot of this stuff in 76, 77, right. 78, 79, and it was pretty fun to hear all of this, and it was fun to see all the cool kids listening to it and hanging out, and it kind of inspired us uh, geeky little brothers to uh, enjoy that music too.
2: I'll tell you what, that's the uh, facade. That's where we were on the outside looking in, but on the inside Side things were getting a little bit weird. The drugs are starting to kick in and take over in places and times where you, you know, you think that they shouldn't. Uh, a lot of times people say stuff and things are said and done that, you know, maybe it bleeds into the songs a little, like Draw the Line and Kings and Queens and things like that. And even Perry had said at one point, uh, being quoted as saying at that point, that he and Stephen had stopped giving a fuck. And when you get to that point when you're in one of the most successful bands in the world, what the hell do you do, man? Jeez, what do you do?
0: I don't know. It's it's wild that they didn't give a fuck, but I'm going to have to guess that the drugs started causing a lot of tension because there was a period where Steven Tyler was so hooked on heroin, he would wander the streets looking to buy a oh. bag. The fact that this band is a five-unit survived the way they did and still around to be able to uh, perform today and be around today is a miracle, and it is, we're the whole so final chapter. lucky. The whole final chapter is a miracle. Yeah.
2: You know, everything that's happened since, uh, since they came back in the 80s. Yeah. yeah. All I could say is that, you know, uh, you get to this point, and uh, you get to draw the line, and they're not doing so good. They're like, you know— They're like your friend who you've been partying with for two days who's sitting at the table and he looks at you and he goes, hey, Marcus, you're not looking so good. It's that kind of scenario, and yet they kept plowing on, kept Mm -hmm. touring. They get in the studio, but they're working with a different producer. Are you talking about Night in the Ruts? Yeah. Now, right in here after Draw the Line when they're on tour, Marcus... It's so one of the not-so-proud moments in my life as a Philadelphia rock and roller. Uh, someone, as was known to happen at shows at the old Philadelphia air-conditioned spectrum, upon occasion, not all the time, somebody was chucking fireworks, and somebody threw, like, a cherry bomb, or I don't think it was an M-80, because it would have probably really hurt him, but it sent a cherry bomb flying down, and it just got to the stage within feet of Tyler and went off close enough to his head so that he felt the impact and stopped the show walked off stage and said they'd never return. Now, that did last for a while, but they did eventually return. Uh, I can't remember the whole story about how the city and rock and roll in the city and Stephen and made up. But I was there afterwards, and that'll be part of our second part of our Aerosmith episode here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. But this all leads to Night in the Ruts, Marcus, after the World Series of Rock. they're in there and they're not getting along well they're not playing so well i mean i was listening through to a lot of the music and i'm like trying to find some bright spots and i'm like everything just sounds different doesn't sound energized doesn't sound fired up their only significant um single was their cover of the shangri-la song remember walking in the sand and it was really good but it wasn't really what you'd expect from aerosmith
0: right a cover song that album i listened to a little bit and Didn't feel the vibe off of that album, and don't remember my thoughts about that when it was new. I just, I don't know, it just had such a different vibe, almost like you could feel the tension in the band.
2: If you think they were in crisis, they were. Hamilton said they'd been working on the album, but they had no lyrics. They were really in a bad spot. He called it a major crisis. And there were also money issues, and in the middle of it, Joe Perry. Takes a powder. Says, that's it, I'm out. There was something about a hotel bill that was unbelievable, and he said, "I'll pay for it with my solo album." Whitford says, "Yeah, I'm going to go start this band with Derek St. Holmes, which never did anything of note." Um, they both kind of sat out there trying to hold out with their arms crossed, you know. David Krebs, who pulled the whole things together and was a Svengali for them as a manager, you know, he did the best that he could, and that's when uh, Jimmy Crespo comes in, and I'm meh about that whole period in the band and the next record that comes out you know it's all just man rock in a hard place it sounded different you know what it sounded like the two guitar players were missing that's what it sounded like to me and that's no disrespect to Crespo but it sounded like the two guitar players were missing because they weren't and Rick Dufay comes along and he gets employed because they need two guitar players no matter how much overdubbing you can do in a studio and Lightning Strikes from that album was a pretty good song, but the album doesn't hold up to what they've been doing. Still, it goes gold, right? <laughs> Go figure.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, really, looking back at it, the only song I remember off of that album is Lightning Strikes. I had to listen to some of those other songs during the prep of this, and I'm like, eh, I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one.
2: And, you know, there's some live albums interspersed between all the studio albums, and that kind of keeps momentum going. Yeah. They really are off the rails at this point. Joe is off doing his own thing, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And Brad says he's working with Derek St. Holmes. I don't even think they got signed. And so they're kind of like are doing their thing, still moving forward, not so well, but still moving forward until... We get to part two of this episode.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and not one, but two prodigal sons return to the fold. Uh, and that's what happens that starts one of the most amazing comebacks. Maybe only rivaled by AC/DC. you know? So how about we figure, go uh, put the first four or five albums on uh, shuffle, right?
0: Yeah.
2: Or we'll get the 8-track player. We'll play 8-track uh, roulette. We'll <laughs> <Listen, laughs> see what songs we get. Pop them in and out, see what songs we get. I- and we'll do that, and uh, until we can get together and finish up the story of Aerosmith here on the podcast, what do you say, partner?
0: I say I hope that the eight-track tapes aren't warped
2: beyond belief, beyond playability. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you From know,
0: overplaying back in the day.
2: <laughs> I'm not, I'm not baking those. I'll tell you that. I may bake cassettes or some dads, but I'm not baking any A-tracks. Oh, no way. <laughs> I'll bake while listening to the A-tracks, but not on <laughs> Well, if you want to plug in and uh, let us know what we missed here on the first portion of our story of Aerosmith, all you got to do is send us an email to imbalancehistory at com. That's an easy way to do it, and a lot of you are. Thank you. Uh, you can also chime in and comment on our social media pages. We are The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll on Facebook at ImbalanceHisto on Twitter and the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll on Instagram. I went looking for it. I can't find it. I'm not a good Instagram guy. Sorry, partner. I'm glad you can handle that page for us. Good. Uh, But look, we get together and we talk about stuff and we just look at each other like, did we just miss stuff? And it's like, of course we did. And I almost didn't mention Krebs, who really is such an important part of the Aerosmith story, especially up to the point where we are in rock and roll history for that band. An amazing story, too much to fit in one episode, and that's why we're going to take
0: a powder, right? You know, Ray, we are ready to rock and roll the next Aerosmith episode. We've done the research. We've got the research department on top of some things that we may have missed during the first part of the episode with their reunification and the Run DMC stuff. We have a lot to talk about.
2: It is the imbalance history from Dark Dark Media and uh, we're still doing remote, but I think we're getting closer and closer now to our next episode sessions being in person. Um, But it's funny because we're going to take a short break in our world too. And then we'll reconvene because we're
0: really ready to go.
2: So let's just say more Aerosmith or the rest of the story of Aerosmith is on the next episode of the Imbalance History
0: of Rock and Roll.
1: 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only